in hindsight, while I didn't realize it then, I know it now that the symptoms that I look to today to sort of acknowledge that I struggle with depression and I know when my depression has been exacerbated, trace back to high school around my sophomore, junior year in high school. So that's when I'm able to pinpoint the depression beginning to manifest. And as a young person, you know, growing up, rumble tumble (laughs) um, on the south side of Chicago, the last thing I would even consider is that I have a mental illness. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 22. Today I have Alatunji Obayi Reed. Actually, Obayi Reed is related to KJ Rose from episode four. They are cousins. Obayi Reed grew up in the Chatham community on Chicago's South Side. He began his career as a community redevelopment agent market coordinator at J.P. Morgan Chase. He later took a position as vice president and community relations director for Citigroup. He was responsible for Community Reinvestment Act compliance and community development strategies for Citibank Illinois. He served as a member of Citigroup leadership team and the Citibank Illinois Senior Management Team. Reed later worked with Nike, where he served as a regional manager for community affairs and corporate social responsibility, CSR. He was responsible for leading Nike's CSR strategies in the U.S. Central Region, including program development, community investment, in-kind donation, stakeholder engagement, product seeding, community relations, event planning, community marketing, and public relations. Around that time, Reed joined Nike. He was struggling with depression and he turned to bike riding, which he credits with helping him pull out of his extended social isolation. After that, He started a small cycling group with friends and family called the Pioneers, which eventually folded into the existing black cycling organization called Red, Bike, and Green. Reed also co-founded and served as the president and CEO of Slow Road Chicago. Slow Road Chicago is a spinoff of Slow Road Rides that started in Detroit, Michigan. Slow Roll Chicago is a bicycle movement with the purpose is to ride bicycles to make black brown neighborhoods better. Slow Roll Chicago's vision is equal bike usage across the city of Chicago with respect to race, income, and neighborhood. The vision was bicycles as a form of effective transportation, 
contributing to reducing violence, improving health, creating jobs, and ultimately making black, brown neighborhoods more livable. In 2015, Reed was awarded the White House Transportation Champion of Change Award by the White House and the United States Department of Transportation under President Obama. In 2017, Reed launched Equiticity. In order to expand the scope of its transportation equality work nationally and globally, Equiticity is a Chicago nonprofit that pushes for transportation equality and racial justice. Equiticity's vision is a city where racial equality is integrated at the policy and legislative levels. He envisions Equiticity creating a U.S. city that serves as a model for the rest of the world on how to normalize, prioritize, and operationalize racial equality in terms of resources. The hope is to reduce violence, improve health, create jobs, and make neighborhoods more livable for black and brown people in our society. Reed is also a community member of the City of Chicago Mayor's Bicycle Advisory Council. He is a frequent speaker at conferences around the world including recent speaking engagements at the Winter Cycling Congress in Russia and the World Bicycle Forum in Peru. Welcome Alatunji Obai-Reed to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Wida. Really appreciate the time to be a part of this podcast. I'm deeply inspired by what you're doing here and consider it an honor to speak with you here. Well, thank you. So your bio is quite impressive. What gives you your drive and determination? Sure. Well, first, thank you. I appreciate that, given who you are and all you've accomplished in your short life. So it, it means a lot coming from you. I suspect a lot of my drive comes from my parents, my mother and father. They did incredible amounts <laughs> of nurturing myself and my brother, with little resources, and also in the face of structural racism in our society. And they still were able to raise two Black men on the south side of Chicago. And they always, from the beginning, sort of taught us and showed us how to care for ourselves, our family, our community, and the potential contribution we should be making to create a better world, especially for Black people. That was always a part of our life. And I believe that both my brother and myself, my brother's name is Kahari Reed. He's 11 months older than me. I believe both of us have used that time, you know, growing up under our parents' tutelage as motivation for the work we're doing today. So you've always been involved in advocacy work and nonprofits. You get that from your parents as well? Yeah. So my father was a revolutionary, <laughs> um, you know, and that was always around us. It was, you know, he would take us to events at the Center for Inner City Studies. For people who are in Chicago, they know that was a bastion of Black activism in the 70s and 80s and, and still is today. When I was growing up, it was certainly a center point of Black activism in Chicago. 
So he took us to those types of places. He owned a black bookstore that specialized in black authors in South Shore. So, you know, we were immersed because we were around him. We were immersed in activism. And then my mom's contribution was really coming from a place of love. It was just this unyielding amount of love that she showed for us and our family and our community that in some ways unspoken pushed us to also love our community and to really explore how we're able to keep our community safe, how we're able to improve our community. So they both did it in two ways. I like to say my father taught us to fight and my mom taught us to love. Okay, nice. Do you use your economics degree in your present work? A little bit, (laughs) a little (laughs) bit. I recently earned my undergraduate degree in economics. I studied heterodox economics at Roosevelt University. So probably, I mean, it's not as obvious to me because, you know, I'm not an economist. I only have an undergraduate degree in economics. The work I'm doing is not explicitly around economics. However, I certainly take what I learned at Roosevelt, which, again, was heterodox economics. We spent time studying a whole range of economic systems, not simply capitalism. And we were able to critique the best that those systems have to offer and not be limited to what we're prescribed is an economic system that we should completely embrace in this society, which is capitalism. So I certainly take that into my work. And probably the most obvious way that I bring that to my work is our framing of racial equity as an evolved economic system where all of the resources that we have to offer in our society are dedicated to removing racialized inequities, improving life outcomes for marginalized racial groups, and dismantling structural racism. Structural racism is our first evil, and it's pervasive and it's deadly. Mm -hmm. And as an economic system, racial equity is designed to break down, burn down, destroy structural racism in our society. Okay. What is actually is hetero economics versus other economics? I'm not familiar with economics in detail. Sure. So heterodox economics is generally just this idea that there are a number of different economic systems and economic philosophies that we should explore, that we should study and learn about and not be limited to the model that we execute in this country, which is capitalism. So heterodox means you're open to a range of economic ideologies and frameworks and ways of going about executing economic systems and not be tied to one. Okay, that makes sense. When you were working at Nike, you developed depression. Do you mind telling me about that time in your life? Yeah, so it goes back a little further than that. In hindsight, while I didn't realize it then, I know it now, that the symptoms that I look to today to sort of acknowledge that I struggle with depression and I know when my depression is being exacerbated, trace back to high school around my sophomore, junior year in high school. So that's when I'm able to pinpoint the depression beginning to manifest. And as a young person, you know, growing up rumble tumble (laughs) um, on the south side of Chicago, 
the last thing I would even consider is that I have a mental illness. You know, it's an incredible taboo in our society, although we've made a lot of strides. And that's why I appreciate your podcast so much. In our community, we made a lot of strides to break down that taboo and talk about it more openly. However, back then, that wasn't the case. And as a young, you know, teenager, I just couldn't even come to really acknowledge that there was something going on. Me just being lazy and tired and mm-hmm. not caring about school, not mm-hmm. being able to focus. So, yeah, you know, came out of high school, went away to school, came back to Chicago in 99 and went into corporate America. And I was at Citigroup. I was vice president of community relations, managing a huge philanthropy budget managing a cross-functional team in the uh, territory. It was a lot of responsibility. It was a high-pressure job. And the stress and other things that were going on in my life caused me to become severely depressed. And prior to that, I had sort of managed, even though I didn't acknowledge the depression, I had sort Mm -hmm. of figured out how to manage it so that I wouldn't get fired from jobs. So you coped? I coped. I figured out some coping mechanisms. I was working in nonprofit prior to that. Well, I had worked in banking. I was in bank one first. Prior to that, I was in nonprofit. So yeah, I was able to kind of figure it out. When I got to Citigroup, though, every little misstep (laughs) was under a magnifying glass, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't just keep trying to cope. And it got pretty bad. So around that time, it was the tail end of my time at Citigroup, and right after leaving Citigroup, I went to Nike around the, the start of my time at Nike is when I started to really think about how do I deal with this? Because it's serious. Like, you know, my job is being threatened. I can't continue to act as though it's not real. There's something going on here. So I started to go to therapy. I started to take medication. And then in a really dark place, I realized I had a bike in the basement and went for a ride. Okay. You just one day thought, let me go for a ride, see if that'll help. I really did. It was that simple. I was on a leave of absence from work, a medical leave of absence. My depression was debilitating. I had been isolated from family and friends. You know, wouldn't engage with anyone, wouldn't answer the phone, wouldn't answer the door. Had a tough time doing the basics, like getting out of bed, showering, eating. I was in a terrible place and, you know, had thoughts of, is it all worth it? And just in a dark place, I realized I had a bike in the basement. You know, at that point, I wasn't a cyclist. I used to live in Champaign and I had a bike. A friend sold me for little or nothing. And, you know, back then, a bike was a big part of my life because without a car, you needed some way to get around. (laughs) And when I came back to Chicago, I had a car and I just didn't really ride it, maybe every once in a while. However, realized I had it and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I could just go for a bike ride and get a little bit of some respite from Mm -hmm. this pain and darkness that I'm living in. So we just mustered up the strength to go take the bike to the shop because it was been sitting in the basement for a while on flats and had some other issues. They, you know, tuned it up, got it ready, put the bike in the trunk of my car and drove to 63rd Street Beach. Okay. At this moment, like I'm incredibly fragile, right? I'm just, you know, incredibly depressed. However, I'm just trying to push myself to just try to see a little bit of light. So on a beautiful Saturday summer morning, I took the bike out of the trunk, uh, got on the bike, took a deep breath and started riding. So starting at 63rd Street Beach, I'm riding north and it's pretty early in the morning. So 
I'm seeing black folks out there and the black folks I'm seeing are because it's early. <laughs> they're out there with a purpose, right? They're walking and running. <laughs> and I'm like immediately inspired by these black folks. And, you know, at some point I decide to just acknowledge people that are on the trail with me. And I just say, how you doing? Or give a head nod and somebody speaking back to me or responding with a head nod back to me was massive because I had been so socially isolated. Just that little bit of social interaction meant the world to me. And as I'm writing, I notice the sun is sort of peeking in and out of the clouds. And it feels like the sun is playing a game of hide and go seek mm-hmm. with me. The sun's rays are glistening off the water and those rays are following me as I ride and it feels like I'm being enveloped in this ore of protection by the sun. The wind is blowing the leaves and it sounds like a song mm-hmm. being played in my ear. And, you know, all of this just felt like nature was speaking to me in a way that I had never experienced before. And then, you know, the act of riding a bike, I'm physically active. My endorphins are moving around. And, you know, prior to that, I had been pretty stationary. You know, I hadn't done much. I barely left the bed. And all of it, every part of that experience contributed to me in that moment becoming a cyclist and me recognizing that bikes should be a tool in my toolkit to deal with the depression. And here I am. (laughs) How long did you ride that day? You know, I don't remember, probably not long. My guess is maybe 30 minutes or so. You know, I tell the story like it was a two, three hour journey. You know? <laughs> it did sound However, like it was long, but it was- <laughs> However, you know, as somebody who wasn't a cyclist, you know what I mean? I'm just, yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, 30 minute ride is incredibly transformative. You know, I'll take it. <laughs> so how often do you cycle now? I know it's winter here pretty much now. Yeah. <laughs> right now, because it's winter, I don't ride that often. I live in the North Lawndale neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. I would say, you know, with good weather, I'm probably riding, well, post-COVID, because <laughs> now, you know, it's not a whole lot of reasons to go outside. No, I mean, pre-COVID, because now it's not a lot of reason to go outside. I was probably riding every day, running errands on a bike ride, like a recreational bike ride or a ride for fitness, you know, on a regular basis. Now, though, I'm not riding as often. Prior to the weather turning, or it's getting a little colder now here in Chicago, we organized community bicycle rides. And those were happening at least once a week, sometime more often. So I was riding fairly frequently prior to the weather turning cold and things sort of coming to a halt. Do you do any indoor riding trainer or spinning or stationary bike? I do not. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> So that inspires me as well. I'm sort of interested in it. I may look into it. (laughs) I know you told me about a particular product I should explore. I may look into it. But no, generally, I haven't done indoor cycling. It's just hopping on the bike and riding through the wind. It's not the same. I mean, but it's better than nothing, I should say. Sure, sure. Now I got a question for you. 
Do you ride in the winter or do you run in the winter? Outside. I would ride outside like 40 might be my limit. All right. But it's hard to find people to ride with me. I mean, I have winter gear, but when it gets colder than that, especially with the wind, it's too much. I ride outside year round. Really? Zero is my limit for outside as far as the Mm -hmm. temperature. If it's really snowing, icy, I might not, but I might venture out. It's not like a regular run because you have to slow down and watch your footing, but it's better than I hate the treadmill. Understood. <laughs> so, so, and I have a lot of gear from skiing and stuff. So I just layer up, and even if it's snowing, sometimes I put on my little ski goggles so I can see. Right on. All right, but, cool. I'm inspired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know I mentioned like how running helped with my recovery from depression in my book and some prior episodes. So. I can relate to, and I love cycling too. The wind helps. The wind, I usually like it when it's a tailwind versus a headwind. I <laughs> like you riding through sand when that wind is coming at you. When you were suffering from depression, did you find it hard to find professional help, like to find counseling that you could relate to? Or I know some people have issues because a lot of places don't take insurance. Yeah. Or they don't cut uh, your insurance may not cover like mental health, which is sure. another problem. Mm-hmm. Did you find yeah. any difficulties getting the help you needed? So when I first saw medical help, I was working in corporate America and had good, you know, relatively speaking, probably great health insurance that did cover mental health. So from that perspective, you know, the resources was there. And my brother Kahari works in healthcare. So I think he was helpful in going through the process of identifying providers who could culturally relate to me and what it means to be a black man, a young black man in Chicago struggling with depression. I don't think that was a challenge. What was the most difficult, though, was coming to the place, like mentally coming to the place where I'm ready to seek help. Mm-hmm. It was probably years where I recognized something was going on. I need some help and just try my best to avoid facing up to that reality and actually doing something about it. And that was the hardest part. Fortunately, when I, after being pushed to get to the place of being ready, largely by the job because the mm-hmm. job is saying, look, you're not living up to the expectations. So either get help or you got to, you know, something has to change. Okay. It was that push that push uh, made you. moved me. Was know? it the stigma behind it? Because particularly in the Black community, mental health is better now, but it's sort of a stigma, especially Black men. I think most men have issues just yeah. talking about their feelings and emotions. Totally. So it's, I think it's a cultural thing as well. Totally. I remember going back to high school. I am a part of a athletic social organization that was at, I went to Lindblom High School in Inglewood. I mean, it was at Curie and it was at Harper and a few other schools. And this organization, there was a gentleman, he was a speech pathologist at Lindblom. And he was a mentor to some older brothers who were in the same organization. When my older brother, not my blood brother, older brother who's in this organization, when he graduated, he introduced me to this mentor and he became my mentor. 
And I remember he would tell me, you know, hey, I think you might be struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. And I like, huh? What? Nah, <laughs> nah, I don't have a mental illness. No, sir. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. at 16, 17, 18 years old, I just I couldn't compute that mm-hmm. reality. So I just ignored him. You know, I just couldn't acknowledge it. And again, you know, I'm rumble tumble, right? I'm fighting and chasing girls and, uh, <laughs> you know, getting in trouble. Like, you know, I was a rough young brother. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm around other rough young brothers. Mm-hmm. You know? And the last thing I could imagine is having to tell somebody I got a mental illness, you know, mm-hmm. a friend or somebody, mm-hmm. right? And then I remember maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, perhaps longer, one of my best friends who was also a part of the organization is called Crunch Bunch, okay. uh, also a part of that organization. We had come to that organization together and had been, we were best friends prior and still best friends to this day. His name is Jamal. And when I you know, had the conversation with him about my depression, he's like, yeah, I knew you were depressed back then. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, he might have realized that we weren't going to talk about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that stigma is just it was overwhelming. I mean, it's still overwhelming. However, you know, I think there's a lot that's happening in our society that's helping black people get to the place where they could talk about it openly. And your podcast certainly contributes to it. But then, you know, we didn't have these mechanisms like social media, and podcasts and YouTube videos. We were just around the people who were in our immediate circle mm-hmm. and our immediate circle did not talk about mental health. That's true. Season two, I will start a new series called Ask the Doc. If you have questions related to musculoskeletal injuries or musculoskeletal health, please send me a voicemail. Go to my website at www.weoulife.we ouilove.com click on the tab voicemail leave your voicemail and select messages will be aired and answered on the segment now back to the episode you also do yoga sometimes yeah how often do you so i haven't practiced yoga in quite some time however I would probably put Bikram yoga <laughs> at near the top of my list right there with cycling. It is an incredible tool for me. I literally like cycling and yoga are probably in terms of just the physical tools in the toolkit. Those are the two that I turn to the most. I cycle a bike more than I practice yoga. I use yoga almost like a piece of medicine. Like when I'm, when it's bad, I know I could go do some yoga and get a little bit of relief or help me come out of a really dark, depressive episode. I don't practice it regularly though. However, it is a powerful tool in my toolkit. So for those who don't know, Bikram yoga is what we call hot yoga. (laughs) You go into a room, I think the room is about 105 degrees the movements are tough on their own. Mm-hmm. And then you couple that with being in a hot room and it's 90 minutes. <laughs> Anyone who's willing to try it, you'll likely sweat 
unlike you've ever sweated yes. before. Yes. I remember my first time I went to one class and I looked around like, why is everyone half naked, basically? And after two minutes in, I'm like, I can see why. I remember a few people I introduced to Bikram Yoga. They would go in with all these clothes on. And I'm just looking like, y'all go figure it out. <laughs> and then sooner or later, them clothes start coming off. <laughs> Do you know Tina Turner? Yeah, the singer? No. Oh. <laughs> She's a member of Major Taylor Cycling Club of Chicago. She owns a yoga studio. I should connect you to. Yeah, please do. Where's yeah. it located? I don't know the exact address. Cool. But yeah, she's a good cyclist. So right she does yoga. She just got certified as an instructor, I believe. But I'll connect you to. Please do. I'll go check out her studio. What other things do you do for your mental health? Yeah. So for me, being around family and friends is important. You know, socializing. I have a niece who's three and two twin nephews who are, they're going to get mad at me. Should I get this wrong? I believe they're six. Okay. (laughs) Um, And just love being around them. You know, pure love, excitement, energy. That's like medicine for me. Of course, during this pandemic, I haven't been able to spend much time with them. However, I recently quarantined for several days when it got tested. Test results came back negative. Still quarantining. And this coming Friday, I'm going to spend time with my brother and his family. That's an important part of my life. Eating healthy, I've found, is a big part of managing the depression. I'm vegan. However, that doesn't mean I'm healthy. <laughs> you know, I could eat a lot of potatoes as a vegan. <laughs> How long a lot you been of, vegan? I've been vegan probably over 20 years now. Probably, let's see, actually longer than that, maybe 25 years or so. Therapy is an important part of my toolkit. I'm not currently in therapy. It's something that I'm looking into now. You know, I am in a different position when I was in corporate America where I had pretty good insurance. Now working for a nonprofit, Equiticity, I don't have insurance. So it's a different scenario around finding uh, therapists. But therapy has been a huge help in me managing the depression over the years. And then, you know, any sort of exercise. So it doesn't have to be yoga or cycling. Just any sort of exercise that gets me physically moving is helpful as well. Have you looked into, I guess, counseling on like a slide scale or, I mean, there's some insurance like for self-employed people. That's what I actually have. And some of them cover or they give you like some funds toward it. It depends on how much the practitioner charges. Sure. Yeah, I should do some more research and I would love to get some notes from you on what to look for out there. I'm certainly open to it. You know, I know how important therapy is for me, so I got to figure it out. Okay. I can ask us during when COVID first started, they offered free mental health for healthcare practitioners. So oh, I've been really? seeing a counselor for free for months. She might know some other resources. I can ask her. Cool. Tell her to offer some free services for a racial equity tactician. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Wita. Yeah, I'll get back with you. What made you start Slow Roll? So it kind of came out of that experience at 63rd Street Beach, riding my bike. 
from that moment, I considered myself a cyclist and I became a more enthused, active, confident cyclist. You know, I started riding more and more. And I remember as I was riding on a regular basis, I would ask my brother and my father to come ride with me. And they, they would always say yes in the moment. And then when Saturday come around, you know, I can't get in touch with them. <laughs> they got all kind of reasons why they don't want to ride. And I just, you know, I was riding by myself for a while. I was still putting the bike in the trunk, driving to the lakefront. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to ride on the street at that point. Okay. So, yeah, I was just riding by myself and I wanted it to become more social. I wanted, you know, people to come and ride with me. And I started a bike club as a vehicle to get other folks to come ride. It was called the Pioneers. So I started this bike club. By that time, I had left corporate America. I had went back to school. So I studied a broad program in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So the Pioneers was put on hold. When I came back to Chicago, a new organization called Red Bike and Green had come to Chicago from Oakland. And I felt like it didn't make sense for me to continue operating the Pioneers, which was doing something similar to what Red Bike and Green was doing. So we folded the Pioneers into Red Bike and Green and I co-organized that organization for a short time with the person who had founded it here in Chicago, Ebony Sine Hawkins. And then I learned about Slow Road Detroit. Okay. So I was actually with my best friend, Jamal, who I mentioned, go back to high school with, or even prior to high school. We were at my place one day and just hanging out, looking at some Facebook videos. And we saw this really cool video of a Slow Road Detroit ride. And it was a club that was part of the ride, a bike club. And they had their colors on. In Detroit, it's a really distinct bike culture where there's different clubs and they wear colors or vests like a motorcycle club. And their bikes are custom bikes and cruiser bikes and they all lit up. It was, you know, beautiful looking scene. And I remember the camera was trained on some kids who were riding on the sidewalk and they were just riding along the sidewalk looking at this club. This looks amazingly cool, right? And I just thought it was an awesome video. So Jamal and I thought, well, you know, perhaps we could bring this to Chicago. And we reached out to founders of Slow Road Detroit. And by then there were chapters around the world, actually. And after many, many conversations and having the opportunity to meet one of the founders in person, they gave us approval to create our own chapter here in Chicago called Slow Road Chicago. And that was in 2014. And that was a defining moment in my life because that sort of pushed me into the world of bicycle advocacy. It pushed me beyond Chicago because I started to do a lot of work around the world, actually, not even limited to this country, and really gave me my chops for how to do work around bikes. And when I say work, I mean community organizing Mm -hmm. around bikes and issues of equity and definitely contributed to the work that I'm doing now with Equiticity. Tell me about Equiticity, like why you launched it and the process and what's different between Equiticity and Slow World. Sure. So with Slow Road Chicago, we were organizing 
community bicycle rides. I believe you came on some of those rides. So we're organizing community bicycle rides in mostly in predominantly black, low to moderate income neighborhoods on the south and west side. And there were a couple of things that I started to hear from people as I'm moving around the city organizing these rides. One from young people was that they felt targeted by the police when they ride bikes. And mm-hmm. this goes back to 2014, 2015 or so. And the other thing I was hearing from people in our neighborhoods is that they were not all that supportive of bicycle infrastructure like bike lanes and divvy stations because they perceived those as contributing to displacement. And they perceived those as not being for us, like we had no connection to the infrastructure. So I'm hearing these two things and I'm like, wow, by that point, I was a staunch advocate for bike infrastructure, right? However, I knew that there was some legitimate reasons that people in our neighborhood did not support the infrastructure and also express concerns that they felt targeted by the police. And also by about 2016 to 2017, you may recall, it was one of those moments in our history, similar to the moment we're in now, where we were inundated with the visuals of Black people being murdered by the police. Mm-hmm. Laquan McDonald's, the videotape of Laquan McDonald had been released of him being murdered by Chicago Police Department, Tamir Rice, many, you know, Philando Castile. You know, we can go on and on. Like those names still ring out. So at that point, I'm saying to myself, I'm squarely focused on bikes and I'm not intersectional in my work. So I'm not thinking about how does the activity of cycling intersect with enforcement and policing. I'm not thinking about how the activity of cycling intersects with affordable housing, because people are expressing concerns about infrastructure leading to displacement. I'm pretty narrow-minded in my focus on bikes. So all of that just caused this shift in me to become more intersectional and to begin to think about my work more broadly. So I became more interested in other modes of travel, so still deeply committed to and working on bikes. However, also interested in walking, transit, shared mobility, micromobility, and emerging transportation technologies like electrification, like autonomous vehicles. And I also recognized that prior to this shift in terms of equity, I was squarely focused on bicycle equity, distributing bicycle resources in an equitable way here in Chicago. I wanted to focus on racial equity now because racial equity is pervasive and we're able to apply a racial equity lens to any sector, to any mode of travel, to any policy area. So I'm not limited to a focus on bicycle equity. I could focus on racial equity within the context of bikes or within the context of housing or within the context of policing. And then I also wanted to move my work beyond Chicago. By that point, I'm now working around the country and in some respects, even working around the world. And I didn't want my work to only be limited to Chicago. And then I also recognized that we had to have a focus on racial justice and we had to have a focus on 
the role of enforcement and policing in the context of structural racism and the adverse impact it's having on our communities. So all of that, all of that sort of moment, that shift that was happening within me led to me founding Equiticity as a racial equity movement, squarely focused on racial equity and also focused on racial justice frameworks like mobility justice, environmental justice, health justice. And that was around 2017 when I founded Equiticity. And now that's the work that I'm doing. Tell me about your visit to the White House when you received the White House Transportation Champion of Change. Sure. So at this point, I'm still with Slow Road Chicago because this is 2015. I think it started with a phone call. (laughs) Somebody called me and they said, hey, look, I still know the gentleman. So this is so I'm with the United States Department of Transportation. You've been nominated for this award. I need your social security number. (laughs) You're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I gave it to him over the phone. You didn't ask questions. I would have been like, what? Which one my social security number? I should have. I just gave him my social security number. And then he said, yeah, we'll run a background check. We'll get back to you. And uh, maybe a couple of weeks later, he reached back out and said, hey, you've been awarded the 2015 White House Transportation Champion of Change Award. And within a few months, myself, my Slow Road Chicago co-founder, Jamal Julian, my mom, my father, we all went out to D.C. and were a part of an award ceremony with about, I believe, 15 people were in my cohort, people from around the country who are involved in transportation work, some dealing with highways. It was a whole range of transportation folks in that room. And yet I was an incredible experience. It was under the Obama administration. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him during our time at the White House. It was amazing, though. They took good care of us. I think it was a long day. The day started in the morning with me participating in a like a conference call with cities around the country talking about something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but some very narrow, specific topic related to transportation. And then we went to the White House and this sort of like an orientation and they let us eat in the cafeteria. <laughs> And then we had this beautiful ceremony and it was a panel discussion where we were actually talking about our work. And that was actually cast live on the Internet. So people who were familiar with my work, my family, people who were part of Slow Road Chicago, they knew about it and they were able to watch it live. And then after the ceremony, there was a tour. We did a nighttime tour of the White House, which was incredible to, you know, get an inside peek into the space that makes up the White House. So it was an incredible experience. And some of those folks that I met during my time as an awardee at the White House, I'm still connected to and still friends with to this day. And you also have spoken in Moscow and Peru about transportation. Yeah. Yeah. I've spoken around the world. In Lima, Peru, it was the World Bicycle Forum. I was one of the closing plenary speakers. Um, That video is available online on YouTube. In Moscow, I spoke at a a panel discussion, and each of the panelists shared a brief presentation first. And that was the Winter Cycling Congress in Moscow, Russia. 
I've done work in Colombia, the country of Colombia and Bogota, Medellin, done work in Canada and Winnipeg. That was the Bike Bike Conference. (laughs) So yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with conferences and organizations around the world and still connected to many, many organizations around the world. I should also add a place I consider a second home, Salvador for Velo City, well, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil for Velo City, and then spent time in Salvador and connected to La Frida Bike Cafe in Salvador. So I've had the pleasure of exploring this work around the world. It's a complete honor to do this work. Okay. Any last minute pearls for my listeners about cycling, your equity work, depression, yeah. or anything? Well, in terms of depression, what I'll say is anyone who's listening and hadn't sort of arrived at that place where you're ready to go get help, don't feel as though you need or should or have the ability to fight it by yourself. I'm a living testimony that it does not work. Please talk with family and friends and seek help. Create a toolkit like I did and keep pushing. There's help out here. And it'll be transformative for you. It certainly was for me. And then in terms of racial equity, I always like to close by speaking a real basic truth. The root cause of all injustice experienced by black and brown people in our society is structural racism. The most important work we must do is the dismantling of structural racism and the building of a world where Black, Brown, and Indigenous people thrive. And everyone has a role to play in that work. Should you want to work with Equiticity, explore our website and feel free to get in touch with me. Can you actually tell where to find you if people are interested in Slow Roll, Equiticity, or any of your other advocacy work? Sure. So the best venue is Equiticity. Our website is equiticity.org. It is spelled E-Q-U-I-T-I-C-I-T-Y.org, (laughs) equiticity.org. And people can find me on social media. My full name is Olatunji Obai Reed. And my handle on Twitter and Instagram is they call me Obai. Obai is spelled O-B-O-I. I will include that in the show. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Wita. Really an honor to be here. I was inspired by listening to your first podcast, and I reached out to you to ask, may I come and rock out with you? So I've been knowing you for many years. My cousin is a dear friend of yours. And uh, we've rode together, so it's an honor to be here with you. And thank you for having me. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, 
concerns, or possible show topics, please email Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. OU I Life, OU I Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.